Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, happy Christmas Eve, everyone. If you are indeed listening to this on Christmas Eve, which is the day that we're recording it, happy Christmas Day. If you're listening to it then, happy Hanukkah. Uh, Happy post-Christmas, if you're listening to us post-Christmas. This is the 150th episode this year of the Tennis Podcast. David and Matt are here. David, we made it. I mean, yeah. we were always going to make it if you had anything to do with it, but we made and it. It was was wasn't even really planned, you know, to get to this well. many. It just sort of happened. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a bold faced lie, David. You've been planning it in the middle of the night for the past three months. Most of the year, um, but, but I don't know. One podcast just seems to go into another, and one that was planned becomes two just by doing two parts and. Isn't it great? Yes. And speaking of great, there is a a Billie Jean on my knee just now. <laughs> she is great. She's, <laughs> she seems to be a, she seems to be asleep, which I'm not sure says an awful lot about her early introduction to the podcast. But it says that she's a Whitaker. She uh, she loves a snooze. Does Billie Jean? Uh, she's the tiniest, cutest little thing I've ever seen, and she's she's settled right into the the podcast vibe. <laughs> Just feels so right that you have a dog. Oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, re- news has not yet reached Rosie. Um, I'll let you know how that how that goes when 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 it does. <laughs> um, yeah, Rosie. There is room in my heart for for both of you and all the other dogs. There's there is plentiful room in my heart for all the dogs on the planet. Um, but yeah, Billie Jean is occupying. A fair bit of it. She is a delight. I keep checking that she's alive because she spends so much of her time sort of comatose. But she's she fine. She's just a Whitaker. She's spark out. Uh, and she's like behaving, eight weeks old, doing as she's told. Uh, yeah, she likes to chew. I'm nervous about podcast cables. Yeah. Can yeah. you move that mic away from her? <laughs> I'm nervous about cables. Um Shoe shoelaces are a thing. She's crawled inside my brother's shoe uh, several times. She's significantly smaller than my brother's shoes. Um, and what else does she like? Uh, just a bit of a chew. Bit she of, can bit of a chew uh, upsize on to my shoe one day if she likes. So she, <laughs> I don't know. know. Maths is a fifteen. Yeah, sixteen. Six, here, so sixteen. Two up, two down. Did basically. you did you used to have to shop at High and Mighty? I used to have to get my dad's business partner to bring shoes back from another country. <laughs> was that country the United States of America? It was, yeah. That's the one. <laughs> Where everything's bigger. Yeah. Yeah. N- never a trip to High and Mighty. I used to remember oh, yeah, being no, dragged I mean, around there as a kid. Oh, a regular there. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I didn't really feel either by Almighty, but... I did have big feet. I am. Um, I don't think they exist anymore, or else you might no. be in for some freebies. But yeah. anyway, uh, so this is our 150th podcast this year, and the first to be recorded with uh, with Billy Jean in the room. The Billy Jean era has begun. The Billy Jean era has begun. 
and it is, of course, part two of our Sliding Doors tennis series, which we began on Monday. Rave reviews from David Whitaker again. David Law. All right. Yep. Which, which bit did he like? Oh, all of it. Oh. <laughs> all of it. No pressure, then. He's, uh, he's well into it. Well, would you like to go first, David? Will it be one that will please my dad? Is Carol Cuchera involved? I, I think it's one your dad specifically requested, Ooh. which we just happened to uh, already have in the, the works, but it, but it does coincide beautifully um, because we are going back to 2001. And Space Odyssey. Yeah, Tim Henman's uh, quest to try to win Wimbledon and to try to be the first British man to reach the Wimbledon final since 1938. He'd already had two failed attempts at getting through to the final when he'd been in the semis up against Pete Sampras both years in 1998 and 1999. He'd won a set in both of them, but basically Sampras was his nemesis. He just could not beat the guy when it mattered on these stages. I mean, not many people could back in those days. Um, But in this particular year, Pete Sampras had been taken out by Roger Federer, a very, very young Roger Federer. The the door had opened for Tim Henman, who went and beat Roger Federer in four sets to reach the semifinals. Um, and he was up against a man in Goran Ivanisevic who he'd never lost to. He was 4-0 ahead in their head-to-head, and he'd beaten him on grass at Queen's as well. So everything was perfectly set up for, for Tim Henman, the British player, to finally get to the final of Wimbledon. And if he made it, he would face Pat Rafter, who he'd beaten on grass before at Wimbledon three years previously. Um, Rafter had beaten Agassi in the other semi-final. Bill Clinton was in the Royal Box uh, to watch this uh, to watch this match, which began on a Friday. And Ivanisevic won the first set 7-5, incredibly close second set that Henman edged in the on the tie break in the second set so one set all and then Ivanisevic absolutely collapsed there afterwards he lost the third set six love Henman was utterly dominant and he was just one set away from the Wimbledon final he was 2-1 up in the fourth set and then it began to rain and it rained and it rained and it rained And the match was held over to the next day. And on Saturday, it continued to rain. And eventually they managed to get out on court and they managed 51 minutes of play. Just 51 minutes. Just long enough for Goran to level the match by winning the fourth set on a tiebreak. And it went into a fifth. It was held over at 3-2. And on the Sunday, the third day of the match, they completed... The contest. Now, bear in mind, Hemman only was two sets to one up, so he only needed to win one of these two sets, and he didn't win either. Goran said, God sent me the rain in order to stay in the match. So my sliding doors is, what if, what if it hadn't rained? Because Goran had gone to pieces. He, he, he admits this today. I think he knows in his heart that had it not rained... He wouldn't have won that match. You know, just think of all the ramifications of it not raining. You would have had Tim Hemman into the final of Wimbledon up against a guy he'd beaten at Wimbledon before. And it wasn't Sampras. And it wasn't Leighton Hewitt, who would be his nemesis in years to come and who would win Wimbledon the following year and beat Henman in the semi-finals in 2002. It, w- it was his chance. He was playing the best tennis of his career, pretty much, certainly at Wimbledon, I think. Um, and he he had Ivanisevic just where he wanted him, and and it didn't happen for him. And I was reading some of the, the reports that were written at the time. Uh, this one from Stephen Biley of The Guardian particularly stood out. And and it, it it reads pretty brutally, to be honest, if you just listen to this. But it, 
I think we also shouldn't shy away from what he's saying here. He said, Henman held serve for three all, and then a double fault by Ivanisevic and a solid backhand by Henman briefly, flatteringly, raised hopes of him playing Australia's Pat Rafter in today's midday final. In a hole, Ivanisevic did what he invariably does and aced his way to safety. And Henman cracked. No other word for it. And it's hard to read that, isn't it? Um, when Ivanisevic eventually won it, 6-3 in the fifth set, Stephen Barley writes, it was Ed Henman's eighth defeat in his last nine five-set matches, a further indi- indication of his frailty under extreme pressure. He continues to believe that it is his destiny to win the Wimbledon title. Henman said, I certainly feel with my game that I'm better than the vast majority of players on grass. In my heart, I know I will win. Wow. It is a laudable ambition, although if his professional tennis career is taken out of the grass court context, there is little accumulated evidence to suggest that the 26-year-old Oxford-born player will ever emulate Fred Perry, three times a Wimbledon winner, or even Bunny Austin, the last British player to reach the men's singles final in 1938. Should Henman reach the last eight in the US Open next month or in Australia next year, there would be some grounds for hope. However, the chances are that for all his obvious qualities amplified on grass, he has just blown his best ever chance of winning the Wimbledon title. Mentally, he is not tough enough and he possesses no shot of sufficient power to trouble the game's true heavyweights. Well, well, that take suggests it's not really a sliding doors moment, that that the rain wasn't the decisive factor. And in fact, the decisive factor was was Tim Henman's mental frailty. Discuss. Well, I, 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 I take the point, but I, would, I felt the way it was going, he was on a downward trajectory with momentum. He was just rolling downhill towards the final, was Henman at that point. Six love, two one up rain comes now yes his own mental fragility got in the way the next day but I just don't think it would have done had the rain not intervened and I think Goran feels that too bit bit of a blow from Goran to suggest that God intervened to make sure that he would win (laughs) God doesn't like you Tim not not you Uh, well I mean obviously Goran by that time had already been in Three Wimbledon finals himself. We covered that in our Tennis Relived series during Wimbledon a few months ago. And um, and we spoke to him and Pat Rafter. But we didn't really consider Tim in that conversation because there were so many competing storylines. You heard the, the the sorrow in Pat Rafter's voice as, as sort of decent a man as he is about it all it, it still hurts him whenever we speak to Tim these days he's he's very good at kind of just letting it go you know and but he also admits that that's the one match if he could have back he would have that one back because he felt that's the one he should win and if you uh, bear in mind Stephen Barley mentioned the US Open and the Australian Open to follow I had a look at what happened in those matches in those tournaments and he lost to Xavier Melisse in the third round of the US Open, 6-4 in the fifth set, a match in which Melisse was coached by David Felgate, who had been obviously Henman's coach all the way through to April 2001. And that Wimbledon was the first Wimbledon that he'd been not coached by Felgate. In fact, he was coached by nobody at that point. And Felgate, I remember this, was on the BBC Radio 5 Live team for that Wimbledon he was commentating on Henman's semi-final and as he was asked to sum up his feelings upon Henman's defeat he was choked with emotion I'd never heard anything quite like that before he was really it was really something it really moved me listening to it at the time um, the Australian Open that followed I mean Henman stayed in good form he he won Basel without dropping a set late that year and he beat Hen- he beat Federer 6-3 6-4 6-2 in the final um, and then he won Adelaide at the start of 2002. And then he beat Rosetsky to reach the fourth round of that Australian Open where he was the highest ranked player left in the draw and everybody thought he would win. That's the one um, that got away for me. And he, he lost to Jonas Bjorkman in mm. straight sets. Um, so, I mean, just just 
look at it in terms of the sliding doors moment if it hadn't arraigned if he'd got over the line in that semi and if he had beaten Pat Rafter as a result. But is that not the the biggest if in that sentence, if he had beaten Pat Rafter? All of these, the the significance placed upon the, the sliding doors of the semi-finals is sort of contingent on the assumption that he wins the final. Sure, it's an assumption, but if it doesn't rain and if he doesn't beat Ivanisevic, he doesn't get there. And he'd beaten him before at the same place. Sure, I'm just, you know... Discuss. Would he have won the final? Well, That's... I think I, he would have at least had a 50-50, whereas in his other chances, I don't think the odds were that good. Um, I think he'd have been the favourite, actually. Let's say he had. Let's just say he had. What's the cultural impact of Tim Henman winning Wimbledon? Well, that's what I was coming on to. Would Andy Murray have been such a big deal? His management agency would not be called 77 today. Might have a better logo. <laughs> Could he have been a I bigger like deal? Could Andy Murray have been a bigger yeah. deal if they didn't have that? I, I yeah, because say... tennis might have had a higher profile in the UK at the time that, that Andy was mm. coming through. There would certainly, I think, have been an in, a, an enormous reaction. You, it, would, it would have been interesting to see if anything happens materially in terms of participation within the sport. I mean, I don't... I don't feel like that happened enormously after Murray won Wimbledon, and I suspect it would have been a temporary injection if Hemman had won Wimbledon. But I, I personally think that Murray would have had more pressure on him, um, in not not in terms of to win it, but I, 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 I think I don't think people would have been as accepting of him because he's followed somebody who's already won it. Um, there were there were already the issues. There were already the knives out for Murray in his the early parts of his career. But I think he won people over a by being a decent guy, but mainly because he won, because he ended the drought. How did Tim Hemman used to match up against fellow serve volleyers? I'm still hung up on this assumption that he would have won that final. I can't quite get over that. How did his game tend to match up against similar type players? I, I would say decently but I mean he wasn't winning them all I mean he beat Goran he had obviously an inferior record against Sampras Edberg won most of the matches but they didn't completely overlap um it was 3-2 for Rafter against him uh, but he'd won their match on on grass I would have called that a 50-50 to be honest had they played Steve Biley by the sounds of it would have would have given Rafter the edge because of the the mental situation, do you think that's un- yeah. unfair? Uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, Steve Barley, uh, great writer, but n- he was he 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 was brutal. Really, <laughs> he wouldn't he wouldn't you know he he didn't cut in, uh, Henman in much slack to be honest in their careers. And you may say, well, f- the evidence is there to 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 do that, you know, and say so he didn't make it. Overall, I feel Henman pretty much achieved maxed out his potential and was just a little bit unlucky on that particular occasion with the rain i think he would have reached the final uh, had had it not rained whether he would have won the final we'll, well i have no idea but i think it was 50 50 did henman play worse after the rain or was it just a case of goran completely resetting and being able to play well again I thought Hemman played decently, um, but Goran just rebooted it. Bear in mind, the first two sets were five, seven, seven, six. So that's the level of yeah. match that it was when they were both present mentally. It's just that Goran completely flipped out in the third set, and Hemman played really well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't, I didn't feel like Hemman choked, completely choked. But I think Goran made it close again. Did. Bill Clinton returned post rain. Oh, don't know. Or was he only in it for the short haul? <laughs> I don't know. I think that's Bill the Clinton day. Bill Clinton still think... thinks it's two sets to one to Henman. <laughs> the, sa- the Saturday, I think, is when he did that really long interview with Gary Richardson in the crowd to try to just give everybody something to listen to <laughs> in the crowd. God, yeah, I remember that. That was weird, wasn't it? That was weird. Am I right yeah. that that was weird? Yeah, although I found it entertaining as a viewer. That's like... Personally. Well, let's not think about what that would be like in, <laughs> in modern terms. But can you imagine sort of 
Claire Balding just sitting for a chat with Barack Obama during a rain. I mean, there wouldn't be a rain delay. Oh, this is what this is what we've yeah. lost. Weird chats with former presidents. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I could one hundred percent. If there was no roof, I could definitely imagine that. I could still imagine <laughs> that for sure. Yeah, why not? And we wouldn't have had People's Monday if there was no, no. rain. Well, imagine imagine People's Monday with Henman there. Um, but, I mean, the, but the, in the your scenario, that wrote... isn't a thing because Hemman's mm. winning that match. He couldn't have been on the well, Friday. Okay. I mean, you're right, of course, but let's say he'd managed to win it and it was a people's <laughs> Another um, sliding doors. Yeah, well, they're all sliding doors, aren't they? And, and, and the New York Times wrote that the, the All England Club were consulting with the police about how to keep people safe on that Monday. Uh, if Heyman had been there particularly. Wow. I mean, it was pretty raucous anyway. But, but. Yeah, w- would the Heyman support have been more raucous than the Ivanisevich support? Because that was pretty raucous. Well, I mean, I, th- I think it would have been polite still, <laughs> relatively speaking, but it would have been one way. It would have been more it, old m- ladies more in way, Union think, Jack anyway. face paint yeah. being raucous, that flavour of raucous. <laughs> Heyman in a Wimbledon final would have had to have been pretty great to have been better than what we ended up with yeah 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 can't believe i'm saying that parable certainly um but i mean when he played har house in the 1997 middle sunday match i'd never heard anything like that at the time and i think if you went back and watched that as an atmosphere that would still stand up today david campaigned very hard for that match to be included in wimbledon relived he really wanted some paul harhouse action <laughs> yeah in wimbledon right. relived harhouse fans left disappointed yeah um, but there's still years of the tennis <laughs> podcast to come when it might happen again um that i think that's a wonderful submission a, lit- a literal well according to goran act of god i mean can there be a greater uh sliding doors mm. thought and, experiment and, and it's a sliding doors moment in real time like i imagine when you were watching that match you thought okay everything's just changed yeah whereas some of these sliding doors reveal themselves over over years that was one in the moment i think the fact that it was getting held over just gave the country chance to just ruminate on every possible eventuality and to share in this stress. <laughs> it was incredible. Cancel their plans for the next day. Uh, by the way, Goran fi- concluded that that it was an unsolved mystery <laughs> that it rained. I could, j- just to to finish up on this one, that quote from from Tim Henman saying, I, I believe I'll win it. Perhaps even stronger than that, was it? I, I believe in my heart. I know I know in my heart I know in that my, I will win it. That's, that, is, that sounds really un-Tim Henman to me. That's that's quite a quote. I don't remember that from the time. That's, yeah. that's quite something. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. 
Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Matt, over to you. Up next, slide some doors. <laughs> um... I've gone for Juan Martín del Potro. Oh. Kind of generally, but I guess the main point in his career I would focus on is what if he hadn't got injured after his big breakout season in 2009. I just think in, in all the time I've been watching tennis, so the last 15 years or so, no player has been more defined by what could have been than del Potro or the amount of time they've lost. I think if you add it all up, it's five or six seasons he, he's missed in total with injuries. Um, and, and he still had this really successful career. He's a US Open champion. He's a US Open runner-up. He's a French Open and Wimbledon semi-finalist. He's a Davis Cup champion. He's an Indian Wells champion. He's silver and bronze medalist at the Olympics. And yet he's still a what-if. Um and it might sound bad, but some players get injured and you don't you don't really notice it. You kind of forget about them a little bit. I feel like Del Potro is a player whose absence has always been felt because of what he achieved at the back end of 2009. Um, that, for me, will always be a year which is synonymous with Del Potro, the way he won that US Open title, beating Nadal and Federer in back-to-back matches, Federer at the time was on a 41-match winning streak at the US Open. And it's kind of incredible to think he's never, he's never won the US Open since. He was in the middle of that run. Del Potro stopped him, and he's never won that title again. He was also the only player other than Nadal at the time to beat Federer in a Grand Slam final. And only Djokovic has done it since as well. So... Wow. It was an incredible, even Murray. Yeah, an incredible breakthrough moment. Um, and then his injury happens at the start of 2010. He uh, withdrew from his second match at the Kuyong exhibition, took that injury into the Australian Open, lost to Chilich, and then he wasn't seen again for nine months. And despite his various comebacks over the years, I guess I would contend that he and men's tennis, in a way, has never quite been the same again after Del Potro initially got injured. Because by the time he properly returned, Djokovic had developed, Murray had kicked on, Nadal and Federer were still great, and that four had been really properly established by then. And it always felt to me like Del Potro was therefore playing catch-up for the rest of his career. And if he'd been able to carry that momentum forward from the 2009 season, I I genuinely think things would have been a little bit different. Um, At the time the injury happened, Del Potro had more slams than Murray, and he had the same number of slams as Djokovic. Murray now has three times as many slams, and Djokovic has 17 times as many slams. Now... Some people might point to Del Potro's record against those players in the years which have followed. You know, he's got a losing record against all of the big four. But I just think you can't look at what's followed and think that's Del Potro fulfilling his potential because he was denied the opportunity to develop at the pivotal moment. Um, He was fundamentally changed as a player, I would say. Um, He never again played with the same abandon, the same devastating power off both wings. His backhand was compromised after his second wrist surgery. Uh, He didn't have the same fearlessness because he'd had a a career-threatening injury, I suppose. So I guess we talked earlier in the year about what a player might look like who could break tennis. I always thought Del Potro was almost that guy. He, was, he had a huge serve, huge power, 
a massive frame and yet he still moved well. He had decent touch at the net. He kind of had everything. He was a force of personality that people got behind. I was watching some highlights of that US Open final against Federer. There's a point in that match where he starts high-fiving everyone in the front row. (laughs) People connect with him. People love Del Potro. And yes, he went on to achieve some great things, but I just think we were were denied a, a huge career and someone who... I think certainly would have turned the big four into a big five. For me, he is that good. Who of the of the big four would have suffered the most? Who, let's say Del Potro would have won, let's say four. Let's, let's say four slams over the course of the last 11 years, four additional slams. Who would he have taken them from? Well, I looked at this and I thought, Del Potro manhandled Nadal in that US Open semi-final. I think it was 6-2, 6-2, 6-2. Nadal's won four US Opens since then. And I would say Del Potro might have taken a couple of them. I mean, 2010 Nadal was fantastic. 2013 Nadal was, was also fantastic. But possibly that 2017 US Open or the more recent 2019 one, there are chances there, I would say. Um he 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 had a real good record against Nadal in that 2009 season, Del Potro, and never quite was able to have that record again. Um, I, always, I always think he's matched up well against Federer. Federer hasn't won as many slams since that 2009 period, so it's difficult to say whether Federer would have been hugely affected, but Del Potro to me is a guy that causes Federer problems. That 2009 final, Federer got really irritated and... He's in his head, I think. Del Potro is in Federer's head a little bit when they play. So maybe he would have taken one off him. It was Del Potro that denied everybody the Federer-Nadal matchup at the US Open that that we were all getting far too ahead of ourselves about a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. We were ahead of ourselves for the fifth time about that match. <laughs> yeah. I, I commentated on that final. Uh, um, Del Potro-Federer. And I remember when Federer went two sets to one up, it it felt completely inevitable mm. that he would win the final from there. And Del Potro showed a gear that he has that just took it away from Federer. That wasn't Federer playing badly and blowing it. That was Del Potro ripping it from his grasp. Mm. Nobody did and, that against uh, Federer. No. And I would say that the, the, the memory I have that puts his – the loss of Del Potro into perspective for me in terms of what he could have achieved. Now, this may also be my appalling predictive powers and my utter recency bias, but I remember at the start of the 2010 season being asked for my four Grand Slam champions for the year, and three of them were Del Potro. <laughs> that is that is so tennis podcast. <laughs> that was before the tennis podcast existed. Which one was uh, he winning? I think he wasn't winning the French, right? But I think, or, or maybe Wimbledon. I can't remember which one, but it, I got him. I just looked at That's, his matchup. Uh, compa- I, I, I commentated on him thrashing Nadal. Admittedly, it was a Nadal that wasn't fully fit, but it, it, it was he. He would throw him. He was throwing him around like a rag doll. This is like a couple of years match. ago when I predicted Sabalenka would just like win the Golden Slam or something because <laughs> she'd won Beijing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow three of four it was very but but the thing is I just kept going through them and I just kept thinking was this on air somewhere I think it was on Twitter (laughs) is it it still on Twitter Um, well I guess so 400,000 tweets later so this was unsolicited David nobody said hey who do you think is winning the slams next year you volunteered I don't know I just remember doing it and I remember some some raised eyebrows. <laughs> but see, the thing is, David, the beauty of sliding doors tennis is you can now say, well, you don't, you, you don't know. Take away those wrists and who knows how many slams you could have won that year. Yeah. I still think sliding doors or not, it probably wouldn't have been three. <laughs> you mean I might not have got all four of my predictions right? <laughs> I th- who, was wi- who was winning the French? Nadal, you let Nadal have the French yeah, that year. Yeah, yeah it's generous That's of right, you. Yeah. yeah. I thought, I'd, you know. Yeah. Well, Federer won that year's Australian Open, the 2010 Australian Open. And Del Potro had just beaten him in a hard-court Grand Slam final. So 
he won that Australian Open quite easily, Federer. He beat Murray in the final, didn't he? And like at that point, Del Potro was more of a threat to Federer than Murray, I would say. Do you know, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but when you said it, it, it totals the timeout away from the sport due to all his injuries and surgeries, totals six or seven seasons, I was actually surprised it wasn't more because it feels to me like since 2010, since those injuries started, we've only really had probably total a couple of seasons of Del Potro. That That's certainly my mm. perception. Mm. Well, he had yeah. twenty. He had twenty eleven, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, where he was reasonably injury free, and then he was out for basically two more years, and then twenty sixteen was kind of a half year. Twenty seventeen was a pretty full year. Twenty eighteen until Shanghai was a, was a fairly full year. So, you know, you kind of fill in the gaps, and yeah, you get to about six or seven full seasons missed. Um, I I certainly think. We're talking about Del Potro as a four or five time Grand Slam champion if injuries didn't get in the way, considering all the time he's had, considering what he displayed in that 2009 season. The the fact he's a big match player. And when you said, David, that there was a moment where you felt his absence, this this may sound really harsh. One of the ones for me I remember is the 2014 US Open final, Chilich versus Nishikori. And I remember thinking... Mm. You remember thinking, wow, Nishikori's <laughs> going to win three slams next year. I, I definitely remember thinking he might win one. Um, but I do remember thinking neither of these guys are as good as Del Potro at his best. Mm. And and there were little gaps of the big three, the big four not winning slams. Wawrink has picked up some, Chilich has picked up one. Very, very small gaps, but I think Del Potro could have taken advantage of some of them and also actually beaten the best players to win the slams himself as he did in 2009 uh, i found the tweet by the way oh yeah um, excellent S- 7th of december 2009 <laughs> men australian open del potro french open del potro oh god <laughs> Wim- wimbledon federer us open del potro <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got, it's had zero responses. You you thought he was no going to take the French from Nadal? Uh, apparently, yeah. <laughs> Did you, by any chance, predict the women? Given that you said men, uh, yeah, I'm really here for that. Well, if you... yeah, I, I think I think I did. It's just that uh, that could, I've just done my find... search with the word Del oh, Potro okay. in it. So, okay. Well, while um, I start talking about Wimbledon '94, could you? I really, really want to know who you thought was winning. <laughs> okay. Leave it with me. I love how you've remembered that tweet, David, from 11 years ago. <laughs> I, I remember Piers Newbury, formerly of the BBC Sport website, not replying to the tweet, but privately, <laughs> quietly questioning I would take that down if I were you, David. <laughs> And you've left it up for 11 years, just hanging in the air like a bad smell. Um, I would like to, for the second time this year, take you back to what we have officially um, classed as one of the worst Grand Slam finals of all time. Sampras versus Ivanisevic in 1994 Wimbledon. It's been that kind of year. It's been that kind of year. Um, And it's partly because it's an opportunity to be lazy that I'm taking you back here because we've 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 already done half the work on our worst Grand Slam finals podcast. I've had a puppy to to distract me, you know. Um, so yeah, nineteen ninety four Wimbledon final, Sampras against Ivan Izovich, two tie break sets, both go the way of Sampras, seven six seven six, and then Ivan Izovich's soul is crushed in the third set. Was this and he lost it six love? Was this the plit moment? David, uh, no. This was pre. This was the one pre-plate. Yeah, I think it was ninety-eight this when he was, lost in five. This is his second plate. Is it ninety-eight where he's got nice the beard? Plate, but yeah, yes. ninety-eight when he's when he's got when he looks like he's uh, an extra from Castaway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, on the face of it, all those straight sets and a slightly weird third set, you'd think, oh, two two competitive tiebreak sets that looks enjoyable. Uh, it was very very hot; the ball was flying, 
uh, and it was just utterly serve dominated. And although that was kind of the flavour of tennis in the 90s, certainly men's tennis, it being serve dominated and certainly serve volley dominated, usually you'd get some rallies going on the second serve. And all the write-ups I've read of this match were that not even on the seconds. It was mostly miss-hit returns or missed returns. No, there was just nothing going on the rally front. And I read lots of write-ups about it. And two separate articles have been entitled The Match That Changed Tennis. Because the powers that be looked at that match and said, no one's going to watch tennis anymore if this is if this is a showpiece event. And we... We discussed that, didn't we, in in our pod earlier this year? They they ch- the the All England Club uh, made the decision the following year to change the ball that they were using to a slightly softer ball that was before the nineteen ninety five Wimbledon. And and okay, n- none of this caused it caused instant change to to the face of tennis, but cumulatively cumulatively over the course of the 90s so softer ball before Wimbledon uh, 1995 um, and then sort of subsequent incremental changes they changed the composition and the cut of the grass further alterations were made to the the Slazenger ball um, and no one change received great attention because it was tweaks tweaks here and there and they kept using the Slazenger ball and still do so it wasn't like we're using a new ball this year a sort of thing that the media could hook onto is this seismic change um and just a, an article here that I, I read on a website i've not not been to before but really interesting article about one of the two that i found called the match that changed tennis laurie tennis net. i don't know if that's my cousin laurie it's the only laurie i know but anyway um <laughs> talking uh, talking about how they it wasn't just Wimbledon Wimbledon sort of led the way for the rest of tennis and um, indoor carpet courts stopped being used and started being replaced with with plexi cushion that was sort of something that I hadn't quite quite got a handle on and yes okay the late 90s was still serve dominated you had you had Sampras winning all remaining Wimbledons apart from 96 this is obviously on the men's side that was won by Richard Krychak that is a serve dominated roster but then things do start to incrementally change as those serve and volleyers get older it affected sort of who was coming through it affected the next generation and the, it all resulted in another of <laughs> the worst Grand Slam finals of all time, which was Hewitt against Nalbandian in 2002. So my sliding doors is they never changed the grass and the balls and the conditions at Wimbledon. They left those conditions as they were mm. in 1994. And how does tennis look now if that's the case? Well, I, I'm not sure that Hewitt would have won that title. Uh, as, as wonderful or he, or as even re- been in the final. Yeah, I mean, as wonderful a returner as he was, and and lobber and passer and so quick, he was a wonderful player against serving volleyers. But to do it against them on a on with different conditions, I'm not. I'm just not sure. And and I think that whereas my sliding doors was Henman missing out I think he would have had three or four realistic chances to win that title with the previous conditions because even 2001 to 2002 it was noticeably different that was the biggest visible difference Mm. that you could that you could detect it went from being a quick court to being like a pudding and um and 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 Henman played Hewitt in that semi-final in 02 but my word he didn't stand a chance Mm. Yeah, I mean, Goran says, going back to 2001 again, but Goran says that was my last chance to win Wimbledon, not yeah. just because of his status in the tennis world, but he said it wouldn't have been possible for a player like him to win Wimbledon post-2001. So it really did feel like everything accumulated, all of those changes, the shifts that it caused in, in the in the players coming up and their, their game styles, that all just reached this perfect storm in 2002 and it gave us Hewitt versus Nalbandian (laughs) (laughs) and 
wasn't this all happening at the same time that Quirton was winning the French Open with his different strings? Yes. And you've you've therefore got a confluence of changes that is yep. drastically changing the way the sport looks. I wonder whether if you just have one of those changes rather than both of them, we might not have ended up with a sort of 2002 situation. Mm. I don't know. And of course, it, it's affected it's affected what coaches would have been teaching kids and juniors, the style of play that, that, that you know, that they're probably great players that just wouldn't have made it because because that that style of play wouldn't have been favoured or would they have made it but they'd look completely different you know would would Novak Djokovic have been taught to be a serve volleyer it's it that's a very good question because that I mean that's the wider tennis isn't it and I I do feel like serve and volley all but disappeared around about that time um, mm. it, there were some players that could still do it. I remember doing a an Evo Karlovic against Max Murney match in about '04 <laughs> or something at Wimbledon, and the argument was, look, you know, these guys still serve and volley because really that's all they can do. David, but there's just... some tall people playing tennis. <laughs> you, you, you're the only man for the job. <laughs> that's what, that's what it was like. Um, but I but I feel like you know just as a, as a tactic, people stopped considering it as mm. an option. Yeah. David's never seen Rockus play tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, there's a chance that they might put me on that just for the amusing <laughs> right, right. Yeah. tangent of tallest man in the world commentates on smallest man in the world. Right, yeah. It's, that's a single-use gag as well, isn't it? <laughs> Average size humans you've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> and what what about... What about women's tennis? I mean, we mostly talk about surface differences in more acutely affecting the dynamics of men's tennis. But how 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 would how would it have affected women's tennis had it stayed? So, I mean, it, it's it it's even rarer to see a serve volleyer in in women's tennis. At least in men's tennis, you have Federer doing it occasionally. I suppose you've had somebody like Radvanska with her with her variety but she she was she was absolutely by no means a servant volleyer and you know Venus and Serena Williams have been comfortable at the net but not servant volleyers there's been nobody in the mold of Martina Navratilova and and that era of players no I, well actually, I'm just looking at all the list of winners from 2002 onwards and it, it's a lot of Serena there's Maria Sharp over there these are players that are, were able to just hit through the court mm. and uh, Venus Williams you know the, the those are the players that tended to do it I suppose maybe maybe Amelie Moresmo was the the closest but the, these are not the, there were no players trying to serve and volley anymore that's the the, the wider point is it just died out as a tactic as a as a as a way to play the sport you you can't see a player that you'd recognize as a serve and volleyer winning those titles would Nadal have won Wimbledon's. Oh. <laughs> but with, with those old courts, if people were so, it would be one of the things I would love to see more than anything else. Stick Nadal yeah. and Djokovic in the early nineties. Mm. And what, stick them in there. See in the late eighties and find out what would happen. I'm really torn about it because one of the things that has made those greats greats is their ability to adapt their game and move it on and improve it and if he if he had if he were able to win Wimbledon in those 1994 conditions it would be with a different game it would be using those powers of adaptation but it would be such an adaptation I don't well, I, think, I, think, wow. I think the closest that I can come to a, a comparison is the way that Ivan Lendl tried to win Wimbledon. I mean, he'd won everything. He'd, he won eight Grand Slam titles. He won all the other three. He reached two Wimbledon finals and he played serve and volley tennis. It wasn't like Agassi who tried to play his, who just played his normal game from the back of the court and was so good that he was able to do it. Lendl tried to become a serve and volleyer. I wonder what Nadal would have tried to do mm. tactically because he's a very adept volleyer in his own way, isn't he? I mean, it's it looks a little unconventional, but my word, he's successful with it. I just, 
I feel that overall he's so good that he'd have that he'd have won something that he would have been competitive. Mm. There was a period where he was very vulnerable at Wimbledon, and the yeah. sort of players that beat him were ones who were willing mm. to come forward. A Dustin Brown, Steve Darcy, sort of most obviously, I think maybe even Kyrgios a little bit. Um, but he has got back on track at Wimbledon since then. He, he was he did seem to go through a little bit of a slump just for four or five years. What's a bigger transformation to make? Is it Nadal and Novak Djokovic going back to the late 80s, early 90s, trying to play on that grass? Or is it Pete Sampras coming in now, trying to play on this new grass with the new string technology against Nadal? Who's got a better chance of beating the other person, do you think? Well, in 2002, Sampras lost to George Bastel on court number two didn't he yeah but that, that was the peak sampras but, but no. no i think if you step mid 90s sampras now i i actually don't think he's the best example because i think he's he is one who can he was able to beat players from the back of the mm. court on hard courts for yeah. instance i i would be more interested if you stuck an out and out servant volleyer like rafter or edberg or Becker or someone like that stuck them in today's era on these courts. Uh, I mean, these are things that we can never do, and I would love to do. And the other thing is, you don't know. You don't know who. Going back to the Nadal thought experiment, you don't know who his his biggest sort of rivals for those titles would have been. I mean, John Isner could be a Wimbledon champion in those conditions. Ivo Karlovic, Kevin I Anderson. I I don't think so because they just lack a return. They can't get I the thing it, back. In 94, you didn't seem to need one. Well, they would roll the dice with tie breaks, but that's really, I mean, Goran was a better player than they were, but that's basically what he was able to do. It's just, mm. I mean, he, he beat, uh, well, Michael Stick, I remember beating Edberg in the semifinals of the 1991 Wimbledon, and he didn't lose serve once, Edberg. He just got beaten. Uh, I think he won the first set six four, and then he lost three tie breaks. Um, and that's and I think the same happened to Edberg the year later against Goran. Goran would beat players like that. Mm. And yes, may, maybe Isner and Karlovic might have done that. I, ju- I just don't think they're, they're quite good enough to win those massive points. Mm. By the way, I've, I found um, <laughs> I found who I found who I predicted in two thousand nine for the women. <laughs> Here yes, we go. please. Um, also 7th of December 2009, Australian Open 2010 was going to be Kim Clijsters. Uh, French Open was going to be Kim Clijsters. <laughs> Wimbledon was going to be Justin Ennan. And the US Open was going to be Serena Williams. What a year for Belgium. I got zero out of four. <laughs> I, I got zero out of four right there, folks. Um, I actually got two of the names. I mean, I think Clijsters won the US Open rather than the two that I predicted yes. she would win. Uh, and then she won the 2011 Australian Open, but I've got them all the wrong way around. Um, so uh, what actually happened was Serena Williams won the Australian Open in 2010. Francesca Schiavone won the French Open. You didn't predict didn't that. that, David. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Uh, she beat Samantha Stoser in the final. Uh, Serena won the 2010 Wimbledon, and then Kim Clijsters won that US Open. And in, and in both of those two finals, Vera Zvonareva was beaten in the finals. Um, so, yes, my predictive powers in 2009 were very similar to what they are 11 years later. After after that, someone said, David, you should do a podcast. <laughs> no, nobody replied to any of these tweets <laughs> nobody liked them nobody did anything um i'm going to sound like david law here but we're almost an hour in we've got some news to bring you and we still have three more sliding doors submissions how do we feel about a three-parter folks i feel good i feel, fine I feel about good it. about that <laughs> Feel good about it. I mean, nobody's got any Christmas plans to speak of, have they? So we might as well keep doing podcasts. Um, whether I will have equipment to record further podcasts, I don't know because there is a puppy chewing through, chewing through my microphone wire at a pretty rapid pace. But we'll we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, we must cover this news, though. Well, I say news. 
rumor rumor corner re Australian Open practice partnerships. It's it's becoming a feature, and I'm I'm here for it. Matt, what have we got? Okay, these are from Quentin Moinet, the French journalist for L'Equipe, who has come up with these. His his sources are pretty good, I think. So let's let's go with these. He's got, and this is quite a sad one, I think. No. <laughs> Goffin and Dimitrov. <laughs> I mean, great. It, but... it, it, the 2017 uh, ATP Finals final relived. Yeah, the lost era. <laughs> oh. Quarantine pairing. They're gonna they're gonna then team up with Nishikori and Raonic. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> um, Kyle Edmund and Karen Hatchinov. And there's a coaching right. link there. Yes, That's there's a Freddie Yes, Forehand fest. Yeah. And yeah, I, both of those pairings, though, when you consider you're talking about two weeks worth of a couple of hours a day and having to get along, I, I can see them both. Yeah. I, yeah. They're for me those are two players who in in different ways should both be doing better they've both been underachieving yeah. agreed they can they can pep talk one another or or will bring one another down <laughs> further <laughs> Novak Djokovic and Philip Krajanovic right oh that's yep. boring isn't it no no great yeah. surprise Adria Tor relived <laughs> not not a podcast coming to you anytime soon Unless David wants to hit 160 before the year is out. <laughs> Next, Matt. Sorry, I need to compose myself after Adria <laughs> Tauri lived. <laughs> um, Felix Auger, Aliasim and Matteo Berrettini. Oh. Now that surprises me. Yeah. Why does that surprise what... you? I, I think they might be friends. That Everyone's friends me. with Felix Auger, really, I seem, though, isn't he? He's like a capybara. <laughs> I wasn't surprised by that at all. Okay. They hang out, I think. I didn't know they were besties. Mm. I thought I thought Del Potro was going to win three <laughs> slams. <so. laughs> In a <laughs> Why year. Why would I supposed to know? Um, Dominic Team and Dennis Novak. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, Andre, how do you know all this stuff? I don't. This is this is from Contin. Um Andre oh. Rublev and Alexander Zverev. Oh right, they're friends, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I think they go back a bit. Okay. Uh, this next one made me laugh. They might just have a continuous rally for a week. Roberto Bautista Agu and Daniil Medvedev. Oh crikey! <laughs> Yeah, basically, just they'll, they'll just do one rally a practice <laughs> they, session. They could genuinely um, set a world record, I reckon. Keep <laughs> it going. It reminds me of when Mats Verlander and Mikhail Panforsch were playing on a, a public court once, and somebody came along and said, "We've we've booked this. Um, <laughs> get off." And they said, "Well, can we just have one more rally?" Oh. And they said, "Yeah." <laughs> so they had a twenty-five minute rally. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that is wonderful. <laughs> Um, I would have thought that Bautista Agut was in sort of high demand. Mm. That That's the sort of player that I would have thought would be in high demand for practice partner. Yeah. Um, Him and Millman. Yeah. Any news on who Millman's got? Or oh, he doesn't have to I quarantine. I don't think Australian players no. have to do it. Yeah. If they're yeah. in Australia. A- any more for any more? I have one more. Slightly random. Denis Shapovalov and Christian Garin. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that mm. one either. No, are they? I'm not sure uh, what, I, what. Why? Why are Ojeda Seaman Shapovalov not together? I That's don't what think was... they're. Qu- 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 I don't. Th- I, I've got. I've heard no rumours of a specific fallout. If that has happened, then I'm unaware of it. But I don't get the impression they're quite as buddy as they used to buddy be. as they once were yeah i've thought that for a, a while yeah yeah hmm. and more, there's, there's there's more excavation to be done there and it's it's reported that garin and shapovalov will form a second week four with murray and evans oh hello so murray and evans is confirmed no that's still a oh. rumor but 
Um, that's the reporting. This is great. Mm. Do we have any women's rumours? I was just going to say oh. what we need is women's rumours. I haven't, I haven't seen yeah. any of them. Where? What could be the source? Who could we? Who could we go to? You know, people, Catherine. Yeah. Oh, in fact, on that subject, I have some news on Astrava. <laughs> oh yeah. Who would like Astrava news? Yes, please. Go for it. Would you like to know why Astrava was called Astrava? Yes, please. Um, so, uh, Catherine Snedden of the WTA made inquiries with powers that be in Astrava, and uh, it's the the official logo of the city of Astrava contains three exclamation marks. It was a rebrand of a few years ago. Here from an article entitled "Astrava has a new logo." Astrava. <laughs> in caps with three exclamation marks is the marketing symbol the city presents to the public in the Czech Republic and abroad the heraldic emblem of the city will be used exceptionally during official occasions the image of the logo is formed by the name of the city with three exclamation marks which symbolise the vitality energy and confidence of the city and its inhabitants there's further stuff about the light blue colour in the primary variant and the dark blue colour accenting the exclamation marks, but I think we can probably leave it there. So there you go. Oh. Are we are we disappointed? Well, I was hoping it was going to be a WTA initiative, and that we might get some more events with ridiculous exclamation marks. But no, I mean it. It, it might even have been sort of patented by Estrava. Yeah. <laughs> so not, exclamation marks not available to other cities the world over. But there you go. The vitality, something and something of Estrava, if you want to visit. I mean, obviously you can't at the moment because no one can visit anywhere. But uh, pop it on the list of things we can do post-COVID. Um, and uh, on that note, I think we should probably wish you all a Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. And thank you for your support of the tennis but she's chewing through my microphone <laughs> thank you for your wonderful support at the tennis podcast in 2020 and in 2021 um we're more than 20 percent above our target now it's crowdfunding still open um if you'd like to get your name in an in, if you'd like to record an intro for us we were introless today so we're we're desperate for intros. If you want to buy Catherine a new mic cable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll probably need one a week. So that would be <laughs> that would be great. Uh, oh my goodness, you won't stop. Um do we have anything to add to our list of festive festive greetings and cheer, David? Oh, Marion Bartley's had a baby. We'd like to say yes. hello and congratulations to her. Indeed. Yeah. Aside from that, no, basically. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Queen's has got a new sponsor, a new title sponsor. How, the, how do we uh, pronounce it, David? Help us out. Uh, the Cinch Championships, and they're an online car retailer, and they've committed to title sponsoring the tournament for the next four years. Um, so, yeah, good news to get any sort of investment at this point in time in tennis. So, uh, yeah, that's happening from uh, from January the 1st. Does that mean uh, a- Queen's will become a tournament where which has a car on the court? A la, I, a la Delray Beach. I do not know. We will we will find out. I think Graham Kimpton might have a heart attack. <laughs> just, someone just drives a Peugeot 106 onto the centre court at Queen's, pops He's it in the, the corner. Actually, that that's something I, I would I would pay to watch that. Um, so <laughs> just just to see see the look on his face. But uh, uh, no, I'm sure I'm sure it'll all be worked out in good time. So that's it, folks. Our last podcast before Christmas, our 150th of the year. I've already um, committed us to part three of Sliding Doors. So don't you worry. We'll be back. We'll be back with more on Monday. We'll be with you bi-weekly. Um, and of course, we've got. We've got tennis to look forward to from the 5th of January. So lots to look forward to. We're thinking of you wherever you are celebrating Christmas or trying to celebrate Christmas this year. I know it's rubbish. Um, It really is rubbish. But we're here. We're making podcasts. We're enjoying it. And uh, we're all big one. Happy tennis podcast family, Billie Jean included. So thanks for listening. 
and we'll see you on the other side of Christmas. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.